Blog Talk Radio. This is Creativity and Play. I'm Steve Dahlberg. And I'm Mary Alice Long. You can find us online at creativityandplay.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Creativity Play. And download archived editions on iTunes. Our guest today on Creativity and Play is poet and Jungian analyst Naomi Ruth Lewinsky. She is the author of The Sister from Below, When the Muse Gets in Her Way. She has written three collections of poems and has a private practice in Berkeley, California. We'll explore the creative process in poetry and therapy today. Naomi Lewinsky, welcome to Creativity and Play. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Well, I guess I wanted to ask you, first of all, what we said in the introduction about your work in both poetry and therapy, and ask you what you see the connection between those two fields of work, and particularly the connection like, across them from the creativity standpoint. Well, um, you know, when I um, started out as a young person, I thought I was going to be a poet, and then it turned out that I just couldn't do that either financially or emotionally. I had to give it up, and I had to do something sensible, like becoming a Jungian analyst, <laughs> which a lot of people would not think of as being particularly sensi- um, sensible. But in the process, the poetry kept coming back, and as I've gotten older, I've realized that there really isn't any difference, because when I'm sitting with somebody and we get to a place where we work with words and we work with feelings and we work with image, we're making a, we're kind of making a poem together, and when I sit by myself and make a poem, I'm working with words and I'm working with feelings and I'm working with image. So for me, they're very, very similar, and when I'm working as an analyst, I'm supporting somebody else's creativity, somebody else's finding their own voice and their own private language of their imagery and their deep meanings, and I think of it as a kind of supporting of their deep play and my being involved in deep play with them, and when I sit by myself in my study, I'm kind of playing with myself, and it feels like deep play that where I'm tracking my own deepest emotional life. No, I, I love that um, idea yeah. of deep play. And uh, Naomi, I know that years ago, in around 1992, you wrote a, a book about the mother line and mother line stories. And I wonder right. if you can share a bit about um, that piece of your journey and perhaps a couple mother line stories for us, for a well, you know, I um, I became a mother very young, and uh, it was both wonderful and terrible, <laughs> especially when you're very young to try and figure all that out. And it uh-huh. shaped me, and I realized that it um, it had really made me who I was. The the um, it was an initiatory experience for me in life to become a mother young, and so as I started to try to reclaim myself as uh, a actually to claim myself because I never really had myself before I became a mother. I The way I do that is to write, and I was learning how to write at that time, and it was clear I needed to write about being a mother, and I was kind of mad because I couldn't put being a mother on any resume. It wouldn't get me any goodies in the world, so I thought <laughs> if I wrote a book about it, I might get some attention, which actually worked out very nicely. People still are responding to the book, and um, that means a great, great, great deal to me. Um, and so it was important to me as a young mother, but it was also important to me, and I learned this as I went further and further into my writing, because I came from a family of German Jews who had to flee from Europe, 
And my grandmother, whom I called Oma, which is the German word for Oma, was a very fine painter. And she painted herself, and she painted landscapes, and she painted all the people that she loved all through her very difficult life. She had six children and lost three. She lost her country. She had to come to America in her 50s and start a whole new life. And I have a number of her um, paintings. And it's like she taught me that a woman could both be a mother and be a creative person. A woman could deal with all kinds of sorrow and loss and continue to be a creative and spiritually alive person. So in many ways, the book and, and so many of my poems and so much of my writing has been in response to her. Yes, and I know that one of the metaphors you use is um, weaving or knitting. Right. That each of those pieces can be uh, another pearl, another another part of the woven. Well, what I discovered as I was as I was interviewing women about their experiences as mothers and daughters was that people that women particularly kind of loop back and forth in the generations and I looked at the image of that and it's just like knitting or weaving. You know, you go back and forth. You you look at your daughter and you this is where I got the idea of the mother line when I was interviewing a woman who was describing her daughter's first period and um suddenly in thinking about this moment about her daughter this woman whom I don't know if she knew anything about Jung, she started talking about the archetypal significance of the women all through time who had had their first blood and realized that their daughters were going to be capable of becoming mothers and thinking about their, themselves being daughters who were capable of being mothers. And it all was exactly like um, Jung's beautiful essay on the Eleusinian Mysteries in which he talks about that connection between women over the generations and how important that is for women to be connected to. The, the title of, or the subtitle of your book that we mentioned at the beginning, When the Muse Gets in Her Way, makes me when, think actually about... Actually, it's when the, when the Muse Gets Her Way. Gets Her Way. Yeah. And so, I'm, so you see what I'm putting into it and where I was going to ask you the question of what do you do when the muse gets in your way? She does it all the time, Steve. She, you know, I, I think I have a, you know, I'm supposed to go to work or I'm supposed to wash the dishes or I'm supposed to make dinner, and she has other plans for me. So what do you do when that happens? Well, I, you know, over many, many years of wrestling with her, I have learned that if I give her a little time every day, she'll kind of calm down, behave herself, and let me live the rest of my life. So it used to be that I would write on Fridays, and, you know, that just wasn't enough for her. She said, you know, if if you're just writing on Fridays, you lose contact with me, and I get mad, and I, I and, and she's she's a banshee. She can be a bitch on wheels. Um, so she's an archetypal power. <laughs> I have to, it's kind of like a goddess that you have to give something to. So she needs me to sit down every morning, and I've changed my um, work schedule so that I don't go to work first thing in the morning. I give some time to my muse first thing every morning. It's kind. Of, it's a and, spiritual. And, I consider it a spiritual practice, really. Yeah, and I, and I take it there's another one who who joins her from the critic or whatever you might call that person that joins that party on a regular basis. Well, I I have learned over many years of working w- with these energies that. Um, if I pay attention to the muse 
and I can I, I have to tell the critic to go away because it's not his time. I, he's he's male for me. I know that's not true for everybody, but he's male for me. But I'll tell him that when I really need him, I'm going to call him back because he's very handy when I'm revising. You know, when you when you're having when you're first allowing yourself to get the weird ideas that create creative projects kind of call for to just be weird and strange, you need the muse because she's just wild. But then when you want to kind of see if it works and if this works with that and if this word is too much and if this phrase doesn't work, then you need the critic. So as long as he has a job, he's fine taking a hike while I hang out with the muse. Uh, Naomi, so I agree with your muse that Fridays is not enough because then we wouldn't have as many of your beautiful poems as we do to enjoy. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks, You're welcome. And I also wonder um, two things. One is what uh, what do you think about, what what are your thoughts around the revision process or how do you do that? In a, on a day-to-day uh, fashion. And, and then if you'd read us one of your poems, that would be lovely. I would be happy to. Um, I've spent a lot of years trying to learn how to revise. In the beginning, it was extremely painful because, you know, I'd have this brilliant idea, and then if somebody gave me feedback or if I gave myself feedback that didn't quite work, it was like an agony. I couldn't stand it. But over time, it's sort of, it's very interesting. It's kind of um, become more like deep play in itself. So there isn't such a big difference between the muse and the critic because they kind of know how to play together now. Um, and it, it's like a puzzle. It becomes like a puzzle. And it's a very interesting thing because I feel it in my body when something doesn't feel quite right. And I've done this long enough now that I know, okay, so right now I don't know um, what the right phrase is going to be, but it'll come. And eventually it usually does. Sometimes it doesn't, but most of the time it does. And then I feel, oh, the penny fell in the slot. I can just feel that. That works. Or sometimes I have to ask. I have a few friends who are, um, have followed my work for many years and who are my first readers, and they will say, ah, oh, that doesn't quite sound right, and I trust their hearing. So then I wait till I can work it out with myself how, how to change it. So I thought um, I would read a poem that, um, kind of speaks to the kind of craziness of, of poetry and the creative process. And it's a poem that I, um, one of the things I did in The Sister from Below was something that felt uh, kind of outrageous, which is stick poems in with prose, because people don't usually do that. They keep their poetry and their prose very separate. So I had prose passages, and then I'd stick a poem in to illuminate the prose passage. Um, so in The Sister from Below, I um, put the poem the woman you're not in. And the reason that this is just outrageous is that it's describing this female energy that is not my ego state at all. It's kind of a goddess state, but I'm identifying with it. And it felt really like a big leap to just say these things. So, the woman you're not. The woman you're not is sure of her great breasted body. Mermaid to this one, siren to that. She knows where to put her feet knows each step of the dance and her voice from the deep of her belly, how she flings it about like her long, fiery hair, her laugh that collides with the stars. Fear never touches her, whose dreams rise up like sap, and any man who knows her knows her teeth in the back of her hand. 
She grows crystals at the bottom of your garden, wears purple silk and lavender chiffon, travels in a green and yellow covered wagon drawn by seven giraffes. This morning, in a dream, she's handed you an image under glass, a bale of hay in a field of darkness, burning. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Great. Great to hear some of how that news comes out of you in your specific words. I'm I'm thinking again about what you were saying at the beginning of of the connections in in the poetry and the therapy and and particularly your union work and I'm I'm wondering if you could just say some more about the union creativity connection and and how that shows up both kind of in a in general sense and also in terms of how you how you you make use of those connections. Well, um, I have always thought that Jung was a profoundly poetic and uh, creative man, and he allowed his creativity to just rip through him. Uh, And actually, I had a big quarrel with him over many years because in his... um, he didn't want to own his creative side, and in Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, which is his beautiful memoir um, put together at the end of his life, he uh, talks about this quarrel he has with this voice in his head, this woman's voice in his head who tells him he's an artist, and he says, no, I'm not. I'm not an artist. I'm an empirical <laughs> scientist, you know. And uh, so I was absolutely delighted and felt vindicated when the Red Book came out, and I said, aha, I always knew it. You're an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think yeah. the reason that he's so um, wonderful for creative people is because he reaches down to the deepest levels, it's called the collective unconscious in Jungian psychology, of the way in which certain images um, go throughout cultures and are meaningful at all cultural levels. And I think a lot of artists, particularly the artists that I'm most moved by and interested in and the kind of art I like to do, need to reach down to those levels where certain images just mull us all. Um, Robert Bly, who's um, a very well-known poet, writes about the deep image, talks about the deep image. And that's kind of what I'm playing with when I talk about deep play. It's the kind of imagery or the kind of play that goes down to the images of the collective unconscious. So, you know, I think often in... I often work with creative people in my practice, um, and I think it's hard for a lot of people because of the reason I was talking about before, you know, these images seem so strange. This this woman who has no fear, I have fear all the time. You know, how can a woman have no fear? But she burst through my psyche and she wanted to be spoken of as having no fear and having these doing these wild things. Um, it's hard to allow that in. And in the process of an analytical connection, if it goes well, people can have the experience with their analyst of letting these wild images in and feeling safe doing it and playing with it and having fun with it. Um, does, uh, does, the Dalton, does it explicitly come out ever in your conversations with the people you're doing therapy with? Do you, do you have the conversation with them about this being a creative process or that we're creating poetry together through what we're exploring and, and, um, talking through linking, as you said at the beginning, the images and words and feelings that, that come out 
in those conversations, does, does the notion that it is a creative process become part of that conversation ever? You know, I think that when that process is going well, it's kind of like we're both connected to our inner children. And you start uh-huh. talking to a kid who's playing that this is a creative process, they're going to look at you like you're nuts. Because <laughs> yeah. they're just in the process. <laughs> like we're like so, being redundant. Yeah. So I think I don't usually do that unless they need some yeah. reassurance that it's okay to be doing this, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Naomi, in my process in writing, I I also have um, in a side-by-side dance my dream, my dreams and my dream life, my dream play, and I right. wonder how, what you have to say about dreams and in your own life or in, you know, as you've seen it with your and now Sands and um, you know how about those two dance together? Writing well, dreams are just basic and essential. And in the poem that I just read you, those images about her growing crystals at the bottom of your garden, um, the yellow-covered wagon drawn by seven giraffes, or um, an image under glass in, uh, of a bale of hay in a field of darkness burning, all of those come straight from my dreams. I mean, I just am stealing from my dreams all the time. Uh-huh. Um, often, oftentimes a dream is what is the beginning of a poem and just wants to make its way into a poem. And I think for a lot of um, people that I work with, uh, dreams may not be directly something that they use in their creative work, but they are inspiriting. I mean, once you have a sense of a dream and its meaning and you've sat with your analysts and the two of you have kind of brought it to life between you with words and imagery and played with it, it it's just like it fills your body and your soul with this bright light. It's hard, a little hard to, I mean, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, but um, mm-hmm. it's it's this aliveness that you feel. And that just makes everybody's life more creative without necessarily being directly something that you're being creative about. Yes. And you mentioned you mentioned about your grandmother um, paint, as a painter. I wonder if you do any painting or any drawing in relationship to it yeah, as you write. You know, my grandmother tried to teach me how to draw. <laughs> she had a very, very <laughs> dumb student. <laughs> Actually, I went with my friend Kathy. My friend Kathy and I were friends in high school, and we would go down to my grandmother's house on Saturdays, and my grandmother would would serve us um, tomato soup and crackers, and she would teach us how to draw. And Kathy is great at it, and I'm terrible. (laughs) I just never learned how to draw. It's just not my medium. But I just I'm sitting looking at her at her paintings that I have in my study, and I just have such a deep feeling of. her, what she was expressing through her drawing. And I did want to tell you guys that I'm looking at a painting that she did of me when I was two. And it's of this little girl, this little two-year-old, totally focused inwardly, eyes down, chubby pink cheeks, um, can't quite see what I'm doing with my hands, that kind of disappears. But it's a, it's a picture of a child at deep play, an introverted child at deep play, which is just basically what I still am. It's like she caught who I was uh, in my creative mode, and I'm just so grateful for that. Oh, I'm grateful, too. I wondered if, um, because I I certainly, and I'm sure you do, too, believe poetry needs to be uh, heard as well as read. 
Re- reading out loud is important, and I wonder if you'd reread your poem again because I think it's always very um, wonderful to hear a poem a second time. Sure, I'd be happy to. The Woman You're Not The woman you're not is sure of her great breasted body. Mermaid to this one, siren to that, she knows where to put her seat, knows each step of the dance and her voice from the deep of her belly, how she flings it about like her long, fiery hair, her laugh that collides with the stars. Fear never touches her, whose dreams rise up like sap, and any man who knows her knows her teeth and the back of her hand. She grows crystals at the bottom of your garden, wears purple silk and lavender chiffon, travels in a green and yellow-covered wagon drawn by seven giraffes. This morning, in a dream, she's handed you an image, under glass, a bale of hay in a field of darkness, burning. Thank you. Thank you again. And Welcome. Mary, I'm glad that you uh, brought in the, the notion of sharing it and repeating it and hearing it again differently. And I, I was sharing this beginning that I, I've spent the week with an uh, Irish poet who was here for several creativity workshops and getting to hear her poetry in several different venues and, and workshops over and over was, was great. And, <laughs> and uh, it helps us think about, I think, you know, again, what we were talking about in the beginning of our conversation about um, the creative process in general, whether it's in poetry or therapy or painting or life, that right. um, both the idea of revision and repetition um, are important to bring back into the process. Yeah, and, you know, one of the things that um, has really changed in my thinking analytically over the years, and it's been affected by poetry, is I don't... I used to think that people needed to understand their dreams. I don't think that anymore. I think they need to play with their dreams, live with them, and that dreams can be just as mysterious as poems are. You kind of know if you're moved by a poem, but you may not really understand it in the rational sense. I don't know if that's true of your Irish poet friend, but a lot of the Irish poetry I've read, I don't understand, but it's marvelous, you know. That capacity to hang out with not knowing and mystery but that sense of aliveness that one gets when one lives deeply with one's dreams and allows them to carry the mystery, um, I think that's much bigger than rational understanding. Yeah, I think I think that came up in, in several of the settings we were in together about, and sometimes when she uses music as well with her poetry that, you know, sort of inviting the people to, if sometimes you hear the music more than the poetry, that that's okay too, and, and part of the whole sense of what you might take away from it. Yeah, and... Um, that may or not be the literal work. Right. And, and my poetry is very informed by music because I grew up in a very musical family. My father was a musicologist and a very fine pianist, and my grandmother, the painter, um, sang, and she sang really beautifully. She sang a lot of Schubert Lieder, and um, my mother played the violin and viola really well. So, you know, we had concerts all the time. So, you know, um, the sense of rhythm and and musicality is, is really a big part of what's happening in my poetry all the time. 
um, and and music is not something that one understands rationally, but it's very powerful. Naomi, how would you, or what would you say to people about ways to invite in their own muse and and also to um, when they're reading poetry how to play with that in different ways those two things well um, I think I'm a big believer in beautiful journals and pens that you love (laughs) and having a space some sort of space in your house or wherever it is for some people it might be in a cafe where you feel safe and held and where you have a regular appointment with your muse and you just kind of sit down and you have your beautiful notebook and your fine pen and you sit there and write down whatever's in your mind and don't worry about it. Don't think that it has to be great or interesting even. You're just writing. And just do that regularly and regularly and don't even look at it um, for a while. Look at it a month later and see what's there. And it's like, it's like hoeing the ground so that you begin re- become ready to um, sow some seeds in the ground. And when you have, after you've done that for a while, for most people, they'll begin to notice that something is really pulling at them. Something wants to be said, and then they'll write that down. And um, I actually do a writing workshop uh, at the Jung Institute in San Francisco where a group of us meet monthly. And for some people, it's the only time they write, and there's something about the group that holds them and amazing poetry comes out of that group including I, I write in it too you know um, so I think having a, a safe um, holding space is really important having a notebook that you love and a pen that you love uh, and a regular and a regularity some sort of rhythm some sort of time you can count on your muse knows that you're going to be there so she'll show up um, and about you know, about reading poetry, I sort of feel similarly because poetry can sort of blast you out of your ordinary consciousness. So you need a safe place in which you feel really comfortable and held, whether it be a place in your home or in a cafe. And think of it like reading um, spiritual texts. You know, don't try to understand it in the normal human you know, since though some poems, of course, a lot of poetry is telling human stories, and you can understand it in that way. A lot of story poetry isn't, and and kind of goes off in realms that are quite mysterious. And just allow yourself to breathe and be with the mystery, and don't try to pin it down. It's the sort of same thing I'm saying about dreams: is you know, allow the aliveness of the mysterious workings to just pass through you, and don't try to pin it down. And then if you're moved by any one image to flow with that and go go there, go go right. to the river. Yeah. Exactly. I mean actually in the writing group I do which we call you said river and I call the writing group deep river after the spiritual, um we what we do is we write under the influence of, of poets, other poets. So it's exactly that, you know, some some image from Neruda will grab somebody and they'll go off and write a poem that may take them in a totally different direction from the Neruda poem, but something's happened to them because of that image of Neruda's, and they're off and running. It's really an amazing process. And I think people just, can do uh, that just in the sort of privacy of their home. Sort of what you were just describing. 
uh, sort of building on which we're just describing and, and what happens in those groups is, is there sort of a prompt you would like to leave people with that might want to uh, that might have been inspired by your words and poetry and ideas to sit down and perhaps put pen to paper a little prompt that might help them step into that. Hmm. Let the muse. Well, I don't know. Let the the prompt might be to listen for the voice of your muse and write down whatever she says. I like that. <laughs> and everybody can do that and play with Everybody that. can do that. And it might not be a she for somebody, and it might be a tree for a lot of people, or it might be a fox or a coyote, or it might be a dream figure. You know, it could, you, the muse can take all kinds of shapes, but the muse is that energy that comes up in you strongly and wants to be heard. Yeah. And it might be well, something then. very unexpected, too. Exactly. Especially yeah. the unexpected. Write it down. Don't say, oh, no, that's dumb. You know, we all wake up from well, a dream and say, oh, I'm not going to write that down. That's dumb. But then when you write it down and work with it, it's so interesting and exciting. has so much life in it. Well, thank you very much for joining us on Creativity and Play. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Naomi Lewinsky is a poet and Jungian analyst with a private practice in Berkeley, California. You can listen to this show and previous shows again at creativityandplay.com. Creativity and Play is a production of the International Center for Creativity and Imagination in partnership with the National Creativity Network. I'm Steve Delbert. And I'm Mary Alice Long. Look forward to seeing you later in the year, Naomi. Me too. Thanks, Mary Alice. Bye-bye. Bye.